Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, episode number 313 with Bobby Kayla. How are you, Bobby? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? Oh, tip top, tip top. Now, we're, we've had a great chat and <laughs> I always love it when you, your energy connects with somebody. I think we're going to get that today. But before we get into your journey and your story, because it is very cool uh, and particularly what you've been able to overcome in life and now helping so many other people, um, which I love. Service is the one thing we're here to do and you're doing it really well. But before we talk about that, what has lit you up in the last seven days? Besides that lovely sunshine coming through your window, what's brought a bit of joy to your life in the last seven days? Oh, man. Well, my dogs always, right? Because I have three dogs. And anytime I take them for a walk and you just see how much they love to play and just be present, like that always makes me excited. And the other thing I would say is, well, I mentioned to you, we're moving back to Colorado. You know, we have, we have our home in the mountains and every time I'm in the mountains, like my heart just sings, like, you know, that like, you just know your home. So, so that would be, that, that'd be the other thing. And, uh, we did speak about that. I've been very fortunate to, uh, be very close to a place called Breckenridge where you, where you come from and, and you live by. And it's, oh, for people that haven't been to Colorado skiing, it is one of the most beautiful, picturesque places. It's nearly too, like a picture doesn't even describe it. Would you, like, yeah. how do you tell people uh, how beautiful it is without them actually seeing it? Because I found that very hard to do. It's extremely hard to do because it's not just the physical beauty, which is like when, when, when it's, we call it a bluebird day. So picture the sky is truly a color of a bluebird. And then you got the white snow-capped mountains and the mountains, they just, they soar. Like they're just, they soar so high, but it's, it's also the way the air feels. There's a certain quality to it and and you smell the pines and I don't know. It's just, it's just an amazing place. We're so lucky to have a place there. Yes, you are. And if people are listening, bucket list time, I think you need to put that on there. I must admit, oh, yeah. it's a, a lovely place to go to. Now, um, I, mean, I want to talk about your story because uh, yeah. people face hurdles and adversity and, and like life's not easy. Um, and I don't think it should be because we want to be able to overcome things and that's rewarding and that's how we grow. But um, let's go back to 2003 when you know, you're bedridden, um, you'd seen eight doctors sort of giving you no hope. Um, except one doctor, and I find this, I love this, that said you've got 3% chance. Not, And you didn't focus on the 97% chance that you wouldn't recover. You focus on the 3%. That's bloody amazing. Um, do you want to just talk <laughs> us through what that was like and the journey? Oh. And Because obviously you've overcome that now. Um, yeah. yeah. Just sort of explain a little bit about that because um, I'm really fascinated by this. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, what I'd say, it's a really good lesson in what happens when you don't take time for yourself. Um, because that's actually what got me sick. Uh, I'd always been a runner. I'd always been an athlete. And we started our business in 2001. And, you know, when you start a business, you're, you're working hard. You think you can push through anything. And I'd always been able to push through anything. And eventually I found the thing I couldn't push through. And on March 6th of 2003, I woke up and made it into the bathroom and I could no longer raise my forearm to brush my teeth. Wow. Like, 
that's a problem. And that's when it finally occurred to me that I had a problem. (laughs) Sometimes I'm not very smart, Dale. (laughs) But for months before that, I was getting so tired, but I'm like, just keep pushing. Don't be a baby, you know, just, just keep going. And it had gotten to the part, the point where like, I couldn't stand up long enough to take a shower. Wow. I mean, uh, and the reason like, and then it got to the point where like, it was too hard for me to stand up and put my makeup on or stand up and brush my teeth. So I took a kitchen stool up to the bathroom so that all I, all I had to do was sit on the stool, lean forward and put my elbows on the vanity. And then I could, I could just, you know, I could, I could do it that way. And then on March 6th, you know, I, I go in the bathroom, I, I pull the kitchen stool over the vanity, put the toothpaste on my toothbrush and I'm sitting there looking and, and I couldn't raise my arm. Oh. I'm like, oh my God. So yeah, but that came about what the doctors believe is that I had a really bad case of mono, but I didn't stop to take care of myself. And if you do that, bad things will happen. Parts of your body will start shutting down. Yeah. So it was what, six or seven months, uh, probably five months in when we finally, finally found a doctor and he said, well, I, I, you know, based on research, this is what I think you have. And the bad news is that only 3% of people who have this, according to research, will experience a full recovery. And it was, you know, again, I was kind of, I was a little, a little bit slow because I'm like, well, when can I go for a walk again? <laughs> I mean, you know, when can I go for a run again? And he's like, Bobby, you might have to accept your days of being an athlete are over. And I'm like, no, I've always been an athlete. I will always be an athlete. I, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'll find my way back to it somehow, somehow. And you mentioned the thing about the, the nine, the, the 3%. That was years later. I was talking to a friend, his name's Paul. And he's like, why didn't you get discouraged when you heard that 97% of people wouldn't experience full recovery? And it took me a minute. I'm like, Paul, that's not what I heard. I heard that 3% would. And so what that means is the answer somewhere. Someone has the answer. I just need to find one of those people. So that's how that kind of came about. I love that. So essentially like a re- like really bad form of burnout. Is that sort of what mono is? It was, mono is, I think, I don't know if it's an autoimmune. It's a very uh, ex- crushing fatigue, crushing okay. fatigue. But I went beyond mono. That's usually bad enough. That that can take a person a few months to recover from. If I'm going to do something, apparently I go all <laughs> in. Go all in. <laughs> I'm going in. Yeah. Mine turned into, and they didn't know much about it at the time, but there's, they know a lot more now, but there's adrenal fatigue, which is when your adrenal glands get tired. Basically you have a short term and a long term, and that's, what's responsible for all your energy. And so the way they work in conjunction is like your short term adrenals. If you stay up all night studying for a test, your short term adrenals take a hit, but your long term adrenals are there to kind of kick in and help you through the next day or two. Well, That didn't happen because I depleted both my short and my long-term adrenals. So there's adrenal fatigue, adrenal uh, exhaustion, and adrenal collapse. And I was in the collapse phase. And it it was bad enough where like, I don't remember exactly, but normal is somewhere between either 300 and 500 or 500 and 700. I was at 15. Oh. Yeah. And so I found it was a couple of years after that, that, that one doctor, I found another doctor um, 
And, and, and he did my tests and he's like, we got to do these again. I'm like, why? And he's like, well, the results can't be right. I'm like, well, how do you know that? And he's like, cause if these results were right, you'd be dead. And I was like, oh my God. And so we did the tests again and they were exactly the same. And, he, and his name's Dr. E and he's like, well, I, I can't explain why you're alive, but we know your starting point. And now we just got to get you well. Wow. So it was- so you're that close. That was chilling. You're, like, you're that close to well, that, yeah. Obviously, hearing that, but so like uh, analogy is driving a car with petrol light. Like your petrol light was that far buzzing that like you were going nowhere, but you were just living on fumes essentially. Fumes, yeah, absolutely, wow. yeah. So so long well, recovery. Yeah, I, I can imagine. So what did the recovery look like? Because obviously, you know, you want to get better, but you know, rest is the thing you need. Like it must've taken a long time and, and probably hard for you as well with, you know, you wanted to exercise, you want to run like the things that you need for yourself, for your own mental well-being. You couldn't get that. Yeah. Couldn't get it. And so it, the whole thing I, took close to 10 years where I was like, fe- finally felt like I was back to being an athlete. One of the scariest moments of, cause you're absolutely right, Dale. I couldn't do all the stuff I wanted in all my life, all the challenge or adversity that I'd faced, I knew one approach and that was to push through. And I remember I'd found a doctor because the first doctor who said the thing about the the 3%, he said, Western medicine really can't help you. And he's like, you need to find like a naturopathic doctor. So it took me another uh, 14 months to find my second doctor or, you know, the one after, after him. And she said, well, I've treated this before. And, and I, and I can help you. I've treated it successfully. And I said, I was so proud of myself. I'm like, well, you just tell me what to do because I can, I'll do it because I can push through anything. (laughs) She just looked at me for a minute and she's like, Bobby, that's exactly what got you sick and what got you sick won't make you well. And I'm like, well, then I don't, I don't know what to do (laughs) because that's all I know. (laughs) Oh, she must've just been banging her head at like going, oh, "Oh, that your mentality needs to change. But then like, how hard was that for you? Because the thing that you've known that you've done, that's got you where you are in life, you had to rewire it and do the opposite. Yeah. It it was extremely hard, you know? So the notion of I'm going to rest, you know, I'm not going to have, like, I'm not going to wake up and put a hundred things on my to-do list because I couldn't, you know, I didn't know if I was going to get out of bed in the morning. So that, that notion of you, you have to slow way, way down. And now I wasn't, uh, it took me again, I'm slow <laughs> on this. It, it took me a little bit because I kept thinking, well, maybe I can, maybe I can do this or maybe I can do that. So it, it was, this was in 2005, right? It was uh, June of 2005. And my husband, well, he was my boyfriend at the time, fiance, we were getting married in August of 2005. And I had an appointment with Dr. Barb, the doctor I seen at the time. And I had another relapse. And I was still trying to carry a speaking schedule. Like I'd be in bed the whole day and then I'd go speak. My Rick would have to drive me there because I couldn't drive myself, but I loved it. The whole time I was on the stage, I loved it. I just loved it. But then, and then I'd, you know, basically collapse. So it was in June. And she said, tell me, you're getting married in August, right? And I said, yeah, we are. And she's like, let me break this down and make it simple for you. If you don't quit, you won't be alive to see your wedding. Wow. And that's what got my attention. So then it was like, okay, I'm not doing the business anymore. I'm not doing speaking. It it was hard. It felt hard for me to reach out and, and say to people, I can't, I I can't speak at your event. I mean, I didn't leave anybody in the lurch, right? It was plenty of notice and I helped them find speakers, 
But that was a huge shift for me. And it was, well, obviously, it took me a while to get the message. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But then once I did, it was like, because you know what? It felt irresponsible. Just I've stop. always been such a responsible person. Yeah. You know? So, but yeah, I just, I had to, I had to put myself first. I had to put my health first. And, you know, since recovering, I mean, I've traveled, I've, I've you know, I've worked at a, a top sales training firm. I was, you know, one of the lead consultants and I always put my health first, like at the hotel, I go for a run, I go for a walk, you know, at the end of the day, I, I eat well, I, it is a priority. It, it has to be. And if I'm tired here, here's a crazy concept. If I'm tired, I might actually take a nap, <laughs> you know? but I certainly prioritize sleep because I had to, yeah. I mean, when you get enough of those messages and that's a thing too, it's better if we don't have to get those messages. Mm. Yeah. You know, if yeah, we but, stop before then. Yeah, correct. And I couldn't agree more. Um, isn't it funny though, that we get so many different messages, um, but we don't always listen. Like it no. takes, sometimes it takes extreme. And I talk about this quite a lot that, you know, you tell people that something's happening and I know I've been through burnout myself. People were mm -hmm. saying you need to slow down, but until you hit that rock bottom, Bobby, like, is, I don't know, you can't listen or you don't want to make yeah. that change. Is is that what you've seen? That certainly that was my experience. Yeah. And I've seen that with others. And it's, it's funny because you'd asked, you know, what I had to do. And part of it, and I think this is important for people, is you have to start tuning into how do you really feel? What is your energy telling you? Because your energy tells you what you need. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, when you're doing something and it's draining the life out of you. You also know when you're doing something and you're so energized by it that, that you can't wait to do it again. And that's huge. And I mentioned to you before we started recording that my, my dad passed away. He was 89 last November. He passed away. And br that's a brutally hard thing. He is my last remaining parent. And um, and even though he's 89, I thought he's going to be around another 10 years. I really did. Because he, he just had been so healthy. And that when that happened, it was like I, I started dream like in my dreams, it'd be like, you need to slow down. You need to slow down. And I just felt like everywhere I was looking, the universe was giving me that message. You need, cause my, what was my instinct? He passed away and I thought, well, I can be back up doing interviews. I can be doing my coaching stuff, you know, within a week. No, your dad just passed away. This isn't something you push through, but I'll tell you prior to the thing in 2003, I probably would have had a harder time doing that. Mm, yeah. But that's Is one of the things that lesson taught me. Yeah. Do you think you find it hard to give yourself permission? Like, like and I know, I'm just resonating with so many things you're saying, Bobby, <laughs> because no one else is putting the pressure on us to do these things. And I'm sure people oh. listening can really empathize with what we're saying. The pressure that we put on ourselves as individuals is ridiculous. But, but like, I, do you know what? Like, is there a reason why that you think you do that? I, I still always struggle thinking about this. I, for me, I think it does go to, I've always been hyper responsible, even as a kid, as a kid, I had to step up early, like, I don't know, probably when I was 12, it was when I was 12. I know exactly when it was where I needed to really step up in my family. And I, I think that part of it is conditioning, right? It's just what we've always done. The other thing that 
for some of us, it's that's how we add value. So like, mm-hmm. I think those of us who are in more of a helping profession, we love helping. And it's like, well, that's, that's how I, that's how I add value. So I think that's part of it. The other thing I have to say is social media. I don't know if it's good for us mm. <laughs> really and truly because you go on social media, especially like LinkedIn. And that's when I'm on the most, you see all these messages about you got to push harder. You got to grind harder. You got to, you know, if you're not working 20 hours a day, what's wrong with you? So we're bombarded with these messages of, you know, if you're not working that hard, you're lazy. No, maybe you're taking care of yourself because this is the other thing I learned with my, with my illness. If you don't take care of yourself and you're bedridden, you can't help anybody else. Mm. You physically can't help anybody else. So I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Why, why is it that way for you? Oh, I don't know. But I, when you were just talking about that there, that uh, a quote that I use in every keynote I do is, if you do not, not make time for your wellness, you'll be forced to make time for your illness. And that is exactly right. what you just mentioned there. Um I think, and I, I think people are starting to realize that working huge hours is not always productive, um, no. that you only need to work small parts of time and do it really well. Um, I, I don't know if that's changing and that's what I try and do now because I know when I yeah. do work, it's so much more productive because I'm taking time for myself and doing the things I need. Um, but I think not everyone, I don't know, it's people juggling. Right. There, There's a great book. Um by Tony Schwartz called The Way We're Working Isn't Working. And this book came out maybe 10 years ago. Have you seen this book? No, I haven't, but I love the title. It's- uh, Oh my God. And 10 years ago. 10 years ago. (laughs) Think about how much worse it is now. (laughs) But it's really great. And the thing that stood out to me is he said, so many people will sit at their desk for, you know, six, eight hours straight. They're trying to meet a deadline. The closer the deadline gets, the more they sit at their desk. The problem is our brains are not wired to do that. He taught, and this is based in neuroscience. He talks about these things called sprints where most people, the way our brains work, most people, we have about 60 minutes to two hours where in some people, actually the sweet spots right around 90 minutes for most people where you can really be hyper-focused for that amount of time. My sprint I'm really good for 90 minutes at a time when I'm doing something creative like writing or something like that, or just, you know, sitting at my computer. Um, that's the average attention that we can put. Most people though, will sit for three, four, five, six hours. And he said, you're so much better off after 90 minutes, set a timer for 90 minutes. When it goes off, get up, take a 10 minute walk, come back and you're refreshed. And when I first read it, I'm like, I don't know if that's going to work. <laughs> and I tried it. <laughs> It's a game changer. You, I can get so much more da- done in two 90-minute sprints than I used to get done in eight hours. And I feel better about it. Yep. It's yeah, a great I, book. Highly recommend it. I think I, one thing I, I don't know where I read it, but I call it chunks. You know, you, I just yeah. give myself small chunks. Um, and mm-hmm. I think, like you just mentioned there, Bobby, it's about finding when you work best. You know, like That's you right. say you work for 90 minutes, I'd I do, I do about 30 to 40 minute chunks. I only do a couple of those a day and I get everything done. Um, and I that's allocate right. that time. I don't procrastinate because then I can go and do things I want to do. Um, that's and that's, right. You know, that's where like I see a big thing at the moment, you know, so many people want people back in the offices, particularly after the pandemic, so they can manage them. Mm-hmm. I don't like, yes, that's important. I feel for like that social connection and interaction because we are human beings. Yeah. We need that. But micromanaging people and making them do hours and hours 
of non-productive work isn't good for anyone or their mental health. It's not good for anyone. And it's funny because like a lot of our clients, what they saw is their productivity went up when people were at home. And to your point, like some of our clients, some of my clients have gone back to like a hybrid in the office for two days because of the social connections, you know, because there are a lot of social connections at, at our work and it's how we bond as a team. But think about how much time some people, like we used to live in Chicago, how much time you can spend commuting. Oh, to your, you can easily, I spent two hours each way. Oh, did you? And that's, that wasn't even as, as wow. bad as some of my coworkers. That's, for, that's a part-time job. Think about it. Four hours a day, five days a week. That's a part-time job. Wow. And that's not a very enjoyable part-time job for me. <laughs> no, no, because you're stressed out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, but what wasted time. Um, yeah. like I, And again, talking about, you know, working in blocks or chunks or whatever, that's wasted just and draining and stressful. And that's what burns you out. Yeah, that kind of stress. It's relentless. You know, one day I was I was driving into the city and uh, I don't know, it was bad traffic, of course. And I, I happened to catch, I looked in my rear view mirror and I saw the person behind me and this guy, I don't know what he had on, what what he was listening to, but he was like full on orchestrating like the, the band or whatever. And I'm like, there's a guy who's having a good time on the way to work, right? Like, and, and the rest of us, we were all laughing, everyone around him, because this guy, man, he was into it. And it's like, good for him. He's he he's not stressed out like the rest of us. Mm. We just Again, get caught up. Yeah, we do. We do. And I think uh, it's very easy to get caught up. And that's why what we're talking about before, sometimes you need a slap in the face to get unstuck, yeah. you know? And I think you talk yeah. a lot about this, you know, what for you, what is that? getting unstuck you know because a lot of people got all these different terms for people listening or driving or orchestrating or whatever they're doing at the moment um <laughs> how can we get unstuck and what is it yeah okay so here's what i've seen a lot of times people get I, there's a lot of things that can get us stuck right sometimes it's a challenge sometimes it can feel like a brick wall a lot of times it's something that we need to take care of and maybe we don't know how right so there's a lot of junk that can get in our way, basically. And a lot of it starts with, with what's in our head, right? Things we tell ourselves about ourselves, about our capability, about what we can do, what we can't do, why we shouldn't try it. A lot of it's fear. Um, so, and some, some of it really does come down to, because I've coached, at this point, I've coached more than 3,000 people in my career. And I'm not doing it as much as what I used to because it's it's time for something else. But one of the things I saw is I'd be working with, let's say, a high-performing salesperson, high-performing manager. They want to make a change and they know why it's important to them, but they're like, well, I don't know how to do it. Okay. That just means you don't know how to do it. That doesn't mean you can't do it, right? There's a huge difference in that. So, so trusting our ability to learn what we need to learn along the way is critical. And and people will say, oh, yeah, I can, you know, learning's important. But then it's like, how do we do it? So I have this little, and maybe this will be helpful because I have this little framework. I call it the AAA and I call it learn your way forward. And it's essentially act, assess, and adapt. So let's say you want to you want to try something new. Pick an action that you think would move you in that direction to learn something new. And it could be talking to somebody else about it. It could be doing research. It could be, hey, I think this is a good thing to try, whatever that is but you take the action. After you take the action, then you sit back and you reflect and, and you assess and you say, how'd that go? 
What did I learn? What, how do, how, what do I think I could try next? Right. And then adapt is put it back into action. And is there any kind of modification that you need to take to it? And that's how you can just easily keep moving the ball forward and learn your way forward. And it's mm. once you get that the hang of that, there's nothing that you can't tackle. I mean, that's what I believe. There's nothing that you can't tackle. Mm, I, I love that. And it's so true. You've just got to, you know, talk's cheap, Bobby. Anyone can talk about doing something. That's right. Actually doing it, walking the talk is, you know, the thing. But um, a lot of people are worried about failing or not doing it right or how do you like you just have to do it, don't you? Like, and it's, it's you just have to. That. Yeah, you do. And but you can also reframe it, right? It's not failure; it's learning, mm. right? Um, okay, so two things come to mind here. I love cross country skiing; love it like a huge. That that's why that's one of the reasons we live in Colorado. Well, and my husband, opportunity, lots of opportunity oh, for you there. <laughs> oh my God. There's, there's a Nordic center two minutes from my house. I go oh. almost every day in the wintertime. I love it. And, but I grew up in the Midwest. So in the Midwest, it's very flat. Um, the Rocky mountains in Colorado, not so flat. And uh, so at first I was very nervous about going down the hills because in cross country skiing, you have to ski up the hills. And then you, of course you get to ski down the hills. And my husband grew up like in the West. He grew up in Colorado and he's a, he's a great skier, Alpine skier, you know, downhill skier and everything. And uh, he, he told me early on, cause I'm like, well, I don't want to fall. I don't want to fall when I'm going down the hill. And he's like, do you think you're going to get hurt? I'm like, no, I just don't want to fall. And he's like, if you're not falling occasionally, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. Ooh, that's good. You're not pushing your comfort zone. And uh, once I got comfortable with, <laughs> I might fall. So what? I learned something. And when I fall, I get back up. I ski back to the top of that particular hill because at that point I'm like, oh, this is what happened, right? Something went wonky with the ski. Ski back up, come back down it. I don't usually fall the second time mm. because I've learned. I've adapted. But it's, yeah, we have to let go of that. And I don't know if that's because I think we judge ourselves very harshly. That's number yes. one. We are, we're brutal to ourselves. And I think also we're afraid of being judged by others. You know, not one time that I've ever fallen, did I, did anybody laugh at me or, you know, throw a stick at me or anything? <laughs> and, you know, and if, you know, no one threw me a, a rock at me or anything like that, called me names. And in fact, if I'm out skiing and I see somebody fall, what do you do? You're like, hey, are you okay? Can I help you? No, no, nobody's there to judge us, but we think, we think that they are. Yeah. And I think that's because our own judge in our head is so active. And we, yeah. we have to learn how to quiet the judge in our head. And, and that to, takes work. Yeah, it does. And it changed the narrative as well. Do you know what I mean? Like everything you're saying there, you need to speak nicely to yourself. You need to be like you are to somebody else that's fallen over instead of saying, oh, you're crap, you're no good, you fell over, you silly. Like the way we speak to ourselves, Bob, is disgusting half the time. Yeah, it is. I mean, I had a coach say to me years ago, she because I was going on about how terrible I was about something. And she's like, would you ever say what you just said to yourself? Would you ever say that to a friend or even just a coworker? And I'm like, I wouldn't even say it to an, to someone. I wouldn't say it to a stranger for crying out loud. But but we say these things to ourselves all the time because that's what we think. That's we think that's how we've survived. That's how, that's you know. 
I've worked a lot with high achievers. And here's the other thing. I think the higher achiever you are, the worse that inner judge, inner critic is. Because we we fool ourselves into thinking that's why we've been successful. Because I've pushed myself so hard. And, and here's the thing. It probably has helped us to a certain extent. But it, but it's not it's not a recipe for long-term happiness. Mm. And it's 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 not a recipe for our ultimate performance in life. You know, I think that's one of the things that keeps us stuck. Yeah. Yeah, that's so so true. And probably <laughs> takes away the enjoyment of the journey as well. Do you know what I mean? Like we all want to achieve all these, you know, we've got goals. Everyone's got goals. If you don't get some, but mm-hmm. you've got to enjoy the journey as well. And when you are speaking to yourself that way or the change of narrative about all the negatives, you don't actually enjoy the process. No, I had someone on my podcast. He was one of my first guests, um, Dennis Stanton, and he was a college, like a phenomenal college basketball player. And he coaches kids now in basketball and he didn't start out as a very good basketball. That's part of the great part of his story. And, uh, and he said, you have to fall in love with the practice. Like for him, like he would go and he'd practice, you know, hours a day. And he loved, you know, shooting free throws one after, you know, shooting from the, from the three point line, whatever it was. And he's like, you have to fall in love with the, with the practice of it. Cause if you don't, why are you doing it? You're never, you're never going to be truly happy. The other thing that he said, and I thought this was related to what we've been talking about. He said, he, one of the messages that he gives the parents of the, the kids that he's coaching is he's like, don't buffer failure. If your kid has a bad game, it's okay. Let him have the bad game. Don't don't be like, oh, well, you know, the refs were wrong or whatever. <laughs> He's like, it, if you make failure part of the game, we take away the charge from it. And it, it can also be fueled to learn and do better the next time. But he, but I just thought that I, that all has always stuck with me. Don't buffer failure. Mm. Oh, I think that's brilliant. It's uh it's nearly celebrating the that you've tried something and it didn't work. I think that should yeah. be what that narrative that we change to. Um, I know mm-hmm. uh, in Finland they have a day each year, Bobby, where it's called celebration of a failure, where they all celebrate no something way. they've tried. You know, and like you think about it, isn't that great? Do you know what I mean? Like that. I love we, that. Yeah, I do too. When I heard it, I had someone on my podcast tell me that as well. Um, you're just like, wow, that's exactly how we should be because everybody's so mm-hmm. scared about you know, failing whatever and the judgment, but the real reality is that nobody's watching anything because they're so concentrated on what they're doing that it's not even a thing. But when you change that narrative to it's a, it's an achievement because you've tried something that may not have worked. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's a very simple shift, but it's something that we probably need to focus on. I love that shift because it should be celebrated. Right. Um, I love that. I'm going to have to implement that. (laughs) <laughs> for myself, just in my family, not in the country. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody's going to buy into that, but you know, like I can't, I can't convince the president to do that, but um, I love that notion. Yeah. I, and I think uh, one of the things I've been trying to do with that as well, you know, we, we, people do gratitude walls and different things like that. Have like a fail wall, you know, where you can put it up there because mm. then it's a talking point. And I think particularly as a parent um, or a teacher or a coach or somebody like that, you want to model this. It's not just saying you need to try things. If you want no. people to actually follow and walk in your shoes and follow what you're doing, you need to show them that you're walking the talk. And I think something like that, you know, celebrating the fails or making them so they're visible is the way to do that. Yeah. 
I love that. You know what triggered for me when you when you were speaking? There's an experience I had with my mom. She uh, this was I was in high school and I was in a speech competition and I made it to districts. And if I won at districts, I'd go to state. And I didn't win. I came in second and it completely sucked. And we're in the car. And, and, are, you and, over, you know, are you over it now? I can see you like. A... I'm close. I'm close. <laughs> <laughs> and then it sucked. But, so, and mom was there. And, it, and so on the drive home, she's like, well, it's a real, you know, it's a shame that you didn't win. And and um, I think a lot of parents would have said, well, the judges got it wrong. My mom didn't. She said, now, of course, I'm your mom. So, of course, I think you were the best. But she said, hypothetically, let's just say the judges were right, that they made the right decision and that the girl who won was the better speaker. Why do you think they would have chosen her? Mm-hmm. And as soon as she asked me that question, Dale, I'm like, oh, she wrote the better speech. I delivered my speech better, but she wrote a better speech. And I knew that. I knew it as soon as she asked me that question. What a great, but what a, but, but I love how she handled that, right? The compassion, the mm-hmm. empathy, showing me love, but also just, huh, I wonder why they might've chosen her. Yeah. It was so powerful. And then it was funny because then after that, I had another opportunity to be in a different speech competition. It ended up being televised. There were 4,000 people there. And I put work into writing the best speech I could. And I won that event. But I know that that win would not have happened without that experience with my mom. Mm, But see, I I think maybe she normalized the failure. Well, she made it so you realized, but it wasn't a bad thing. Do you mean like, and you know, the way we deliver a question. And I think that's, you know, the power of a question leads to the power of a conversation, the power of understanding. Um, The way she did it though, you know, started off with the positive and painted the picture. You're my daughter. I love you. You did a really good job. But then she didn't tell you anything. She asked mm-hmm. a really good question. You figured yep. it out. That's that's the hardest thing, particularly as a parent. You want to, or a teacher, whoever you are, you you know the answer, but it's not for you to that's tell. Right. It's like it's like Bobby. The doctors knew that you need to stop. You need to figure out for yourself. You know, it's exactly <laughs> you know I mean? like it's exactly the same, and that's what a good question does. That that's the power of questions. You know, and I was so lucky because my mom was so good at, at those types of things, you know, just, she was so good at that. I mean, and she, you know, she wasn't a doctor or anything like that. You know, she's just, she was just talented that way. I think she cared. She cared a lot. I think uh, you can tell when somebody does care because their questions come from really deep inside. Yeah, you know, if they don't care, then they're just telling you, oh, you weren't good enough. Your speech wasn't good enough. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, that's an right. easy way to do it. Um, and we all get tired and things like that. But when you do care, your question allows that, com- it's going to take longer and the work's harder, but you come to an understanding. And, and like you just said, you were able to go on and the next time you learned from yeah. that and you, and you improved. Um, that's it's right. Beautiful. Yeah. But asking those questions, I mean, it makes such a huge difference. And it's funny because one of the things I used to do is I used to uh, coach managers to help them become coaches for their team. And these were primarily sales managers. And they're like, but it's so much faster just to tell somebody. (laughs) I'm like, it is faster, 
But how many times do you want to tell them? <laughs> you, know? if you ask them a question and they tell you. It's so much easier and the change will stick, you know, but, but we, we, so many times we'd grab for what's expedient, what's fast. I know, but then you have to, how many times you have to do it? Like you just said. That's right. You know, like, so in the <laughs> long run, it's actually slower because it is have the same thing. It's like a broken record. You just have to do the same thing over and over because you haven't educated. You've told. That's right. That's right. Um, love I, that. I, I love that, Bobby. And I talk about this a lot as well. The quality of a question, like how often do you see someone? Oh, how was your day? Oh, how was your weekend? Good. Rubbish question, yeah. rubbish response. Like, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, and it's just like we're set on autopilot that we just revert to that. You see somebody, oh, how's work? How you been? Like crap questions. And you have a really poor conversation. Like that's what it is. When you change that narrative, it's amazing. It is. I think, so what's your favorite, what's one of your favorite go-to questions? Like, let's say you're at a social event and you don't want to just say, Hey, how are you doing? What's yep. one of your I, favorites? Uh, I, I like saying what's lit you up. Uh, what's made you smile. It's really simple. You just change one or two words. Um, you know, that. like, or like if you could, I like using emojis as well. What emoji would you describe you felt <laughs> the most in the last seven days? Something like that, that gets them thinking differently mm. because the emoji I feel is a delivery tool to go a little bit deeper and be a little bit vulnerable because you're delivering it through an emoji, not yourself. And then the conversation's a lot deeper. Um, I just find you need to be the change maker. You need to do something different and you need to allow yeah. people to get a little bit creative. And um, that's sort of mine. What's yours? I don't know. That's why I asked you. Just... <laughs> I'm steal I, thought I, I thought I was interviewing you, here, Bobby. That's good though. I like how you just flip that around. Um, it's really funny <laughs> yeah. because you, you, when you do it, you see people like change a little bit because how many, like every social setting I'll hear, oh, how's work? How you been? How's the kids? Like the same question. Yeah. And it's not, it's not that they don't, it's not their fault. We're all asking the same questions, but when you change it, wow. People like stand up. They're actually listening. They're not looking around. It's amazing. Yeah. And the reason I asked too is because I completely believe that. And I, I read an article, this was maybe last year where they talked about this and they're like, many people would like to have deeper conversations, but we've gotten to a place where we don't know how, And which I thought was brilliant. In this article though, they were recommending asking questions like, you know, what is your, these real deep philosophical questions. And I'm like, I can't see that as an icebreaker. No. <laughs> I just walked up to you and said, what's your deepest, darkest fear? <laughs> I might excuse my, like, you might excuse I'd be like, yourself. see you, Bobby. I'm going to go talk to someone else about surface level stuff because you've just creeped me out. <laughs> That's right. So I, I, I want to get better at this, but I don't want to scare people at the same time. <laughs> oh. And I think I think like when we talk about icebreakers, it, it, it has to be very short. Um, one of the yeah. things I talk about is you need to make it so quick that people don't even realize that you're doing something different than normal. Because if you go mm. into a deep question like that, where well, people are just, yeah. there's too much that it's might too come, much. that might come if you allow it with a good question to start with, but you should never, you've got to, it's like a relationship. You don't just go and get married <laughs> on first date. Have Some coffee people do. first. Yeah, correct. You might have <laughs> coffee and you might go for dinner. It's the same with the conversation. Like, <laughs> Uh, right. That's how I feel it is. Right. 
I completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. You don't usually just start, hey, let's get married. <laughs> <laughs> you might in Hollywood, but you see them get married quite a lot. So that's right. Might not always work. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> But we people are listening here, you're a coach, author, podcaster, so many different things. Where's the best way to reach out and probably, you know, I'm sure people have loved the conversation today and um, particularly a story as well that what you've been able to overcome. I, I think it's amazing when people have, you know, you didn't focus on the 97%, which, you know, and the way you felt for somebody that's a high achiever that loves moving their body, that was a complete opposite for you, but you found a way to make it work and now you're living life. So People may not be in that same situation that you were, but there's probably something in their life that people want to change, you know, to make a difference. Yeah. Um, where can we find you? Yeah. Thank you for asking and, and the validation on the story. And that's why I share the story, yeah. you know, because I think it is important. Um, so probably the best way is just through my website, which is just bobbykaler.com. And you can find links to the, to the podcast. Something I have launched recently, it's a free guide. Um, it's called Thriving Forward. And it addresses the three buckets, you know, how we have to, what we have to manage in order to, in order to move forward in the face of challenge or adversity, whatever it's free. It's delivered as a five-day email course. Um, yeah. And I've gotten some feedback that it's been helpful for people, which is, you know, of course why I'm doing it. So that's all there. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where you can find me. I've got the newsletter, which is free, obviously. Um, but yeah, but thanks for asking. No, that's all right. I, I really like that. And I think, um, that's a great way to start. Do you know what I mean? If yeah. you, like, like we're saying, you don't want to start with a crazy deep question, you know, like a, a five day email course, very simple. You can do on your own time. Um, and it That's might right. be something that you can come back to, you know, you might read it and you might not be ready, but, you planted a seed. And I, I love that. I think that's, yep. that's when change starts when you're ready, not when someone tells you you are. That's right. And in, 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 in it, what I tried to really provide is a combination of stories that to inspire people, and also really practical things that someone can do. Cause I think both are really important. We have, to me, we have to have hope and we have to take action. And once we, once we have those two, I mean, action breeds more hope and hope breeds more action. And that's mm. how we create upward spirals. So true. So true. And I think, you know, it's people need to have, you need to have some credibility and what you've been able to overcome is that credibility. Um, and you, you're walking the talk because you took the action because if you weren't, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have got married. You know, you've, spoke, <laughs> you've spoken about all of that, Bobby. So um, for people listening, this is episode number 313. I'll have links for Bobby's website. So you can go on there, go and check out the five-day free course, um, podcasts, books, everything like that. Um, Bobby, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed chatting with you today. Thank you so much. This was delightful. Oh.